Listening Dog Media. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the Offside Rule. My name's Kate Borsay and alongside me today, well, a bit of a different look to today's podcast and a different feel to today's show. Why is that? Well... Firstly, we have West Ham women's captain and FA Cup finalist, formerly of Arsenal and Chelsea and England international. It's Jilly Flaherty. Hi, Jilly. Hello, you okay? Yeah, all right. Well, who else is with us? Secondly, the brains behind the Telegraph's Women's Sport Edition, co-founder of Women in Football and Blue Plaque Rebel and author of Eat, Sweat, Play, Anna Kessel. Hi, Anna. I can't claim to be the brains but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are. Don't be so modest. And finally, it's a packed studio today. We have a woman who's described as one of the UK's sporting business role models and is a living, breathing testimony to young women. Quite the billing. I hope you live up to it. It's Goals for Girls founder Francesca Brown. That is a big, big um, statement. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've all gathered here today to discuss quite a serious subject, but I want to have a bit of fun with it too. And I want to discuss our experiences with women and girls playing sport just how do we do it are we going about it in the right way in terms of engaging uh, women and girls into the game Uh, we're going to hear stories and experiences and just what's being done to help participation and we're going to try and come up with our own solution challenge accepted this is the offside rule from muddy knees media Okay, well, before we get into the depths of our football chat, let's find out more about our panel today. Jilly Flaherty, how did you get into the game? So it's an interesting one. I had no interest in football at all when I was little. Really? I was more sort of the the, the child in school that was into everything. I was good at all sports, rugby, like tag rugby, basketball, netball stuff. And I remember sitting watching a game of men's football on the telly with my dad. And I said, oh, dad, I want to learn how to play football because my dad was was football mad. And then he said, OK, well, let's let's go out. And he said, I'm not going to teach you nothing about football until you learn to hold the ball on your feet, both foot, right and left foot. Because he wanted to see how serious I was about learning the sport. So it took me three weeks to do it. And then I come back in and then we spent the summer learning how to, to play football. But... 
I was involved in no uh, young like grassroots teams, nothing like that. I just went straight in and trialled for Millwall under tens, and I got what, in. So, what? Hang on a minute, because this sounds like a dream to me. So. You've obviously got a natural gift, a natural talent. Your dad spent three weeks putting you on trial, I guess, in terms of your skill. Where did that skill come from? Where did the understanding come from? Can we write a book about this and sell it for millions of pounds? I mean, how? how? Hopefully, if I can get a cut of it. it. Um, Basically, my dad used to play football when he was little, um, all the way up until he retired when he was about 21, 22, because he had bad cartilage problems with his knee. So I knew he was a a massive fan of it. I obviously heard all the stories like you do of, I could have been a pro and stuff like that. Who did he play with? Come on. He used to play for Mirwall. Well, we live in Bermondsey. So that's where, obviously, I was raised to be a a Mirwall fan. Um, I used to go and watch him and that. But... I was unaware of any girls teams and I literally just said I want to learn I want to learn how to play football but I think he wanted to see how serious I was about it so he took me outside and said right you need to learn how to hold on your right foot and your left foot and just hold the ball there still I don't have no other skills apart from doing that by the way um, and then took me over the park and started obviously teaching me the basics really that's incredible so no grassroots teams really you went straight to where so I went for a trial with Mill under 12s at the time because they didn't have an under 10s team. I was only nine. And <gasps> was it a girls' team? It was a girls' team. Yeah, they had obviously the Mill Lioness Centre of Excellence then, which was one of the best run ones when we were younger. But we went for the trial and I remember we you used to get a letter like a couple of weeks later to say if you got in or not. And um, I remember opening the letter and my mum saying, oh, you've got in. And me and my dad looked at each other and was like, you are joking. Because I wasn't good. Like, I didn't know nothing. I didn't know none of the rules. I couldn't tell you how to play. What did you do on that day, Jilly? So I remember just getting the ball and just dribbling. And I thought, my coach... With your right foot and your left foot. Yeah, and just holding it on my foot as I was walking around. But I thought, my coach must have seen something in me that day that... Well, me and my dad didn't even know existed, really. That's incredible. Role models for you, were there, were there any? Katie Chapman was a massive role model for me growing up. We went to the same secondary school. Yeah, Chelsea player. Yeah, we was born in the same area. So it was always that. I remember she come to a New Year's Eve party once. And all her family was there. And I remember just seeing, I was about 13 at the time. And I literally just sobbed. And I was like, oh my God, it's Katie Chapman. And obviously then, yeah, later on we played at Arsenal with each other and Chelsea. Incredible. Francesca, how did Goals for Girls start? Tell us how it all came about. I used to be a youth worker um, in East London and I used to head up the female development there. You used to be an athlete though, right? Take us back a little bit further. Okay, so I used to play for Manchester City Reserves when I was growing up and I used to play for Manchester United community team as well. So I've got very much of a sporting background. When I became injured, I no longer could play the football no more or do my athletics. I could not last on the pitch like longer than 20 minutes without my groin literally straining and me limping off the pitch. So I felt to myself, that at the time when I was playing football they didn't really have like the physio development as they've got now and things like that so it was all left to myself really to try and get myself fit and ready and that just didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen so I moved to London with literally £10 in my pocket and I was like yes How I'm old were you at this stage? I was 18 18, a tenner yeah. in your pocket and off she goes to find the streets paved with gold right? Well that's what I thought, yeah <laughs> I thought to myself that London London was the, the city of so many opportunities. Every time I kept visiting here, there was just so many opportunities around me. People, just the, the vibrancy of the city just made me feel alive. So I thought, this is where I want to be. So I came with £10 in my pocket, started working in a youth centre. A load of young women came in when I was ahead of female development within that youth centre. They said, all the boys get everything, we get nothing. What are you going to do about it? 
So I was like, okay. So I sat them all down on a table and said, brainstorm everything you want in your local community. Everything, just let your mind go wild. Everything you can think of. And the, f- the same thing which kept coming up was football, 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 and everyone's wow. thing. And I thought, mm, I know a bit about football, so why not? So I went and got my level one and two coaching badge. And then I started to do football training over at the youth centre. And we started with seven girls. It went to like 27 girls. And before, before you knew it, we couldn't even hold that all them girls on that in that facility no longer as I was developing the football side of things I was overhearing conversations with the girls about body image and um, being carers and all these issues that were going on in society and their barriers and I thought hmm maybe what we can do is rather than just being a football program we can make it a football development program so we develop a young woman on and off the football pitch and that's how Goals for Girls formed. Wow. And at the moment, Goals for Girls goes out to several schools. Yes. How many schools have you got on your books? So at the moment, we've got six schools on our books. And how many girls? We've got over 400 girls. And this is a rolling initiative. So you may be in different schools next year, depending on funding programs, etc. So you are accessing the very front line, the very point at which perhaps football allegiances or lack of allegiance, lack of awareness start. So that's uh, that will be really interesting for us to talk about later. Anna Kessel. Tell us about the Telegraph's Girls Inspire campaign, because this really caught my eye. Ah, well, first I should just say that, you know, you're asking the other two guests about getting into football. I never did get into football because, um, you know, it wasn't played at school. It just it just wasn't around. So I still don't play, even though I've now spent nearly 16 years reporting on sport. I think probably quite typical of a lot of women of my generation, yeah, unfortunately. me too. 40 and I never played football at school. I got so angry about it. I went and joined a team in Charlton called the Phoenix Ladies. And I played with them for a season until I got pregnant and stopped and never went back. But I was determined to learn how to play football. But, you know, at the age of 30, I'd pretty rubbish at it because it was kind of felt like it was a bit too late. But it is never too late. I recently met Baroness Lola Hornsey. She's in her 50s now, I think, and she just started learning to play wow. and she's going over to the World Cup. Anyway, Girls Inspired, you know, obviously uh, sports coverage in, in papers tends to mainly focus on elite sports women. And, and that is definitely the thrust of what we do. When we looked across all the different issues that we could campaign on and there are tons across elite sport it just felt that the common denominator of every single problem was starting at the very heart of you know growing up to to be a girl to be a woman the inequality that girls face right from the day they walk through those school gates age four years old and the the kind of PE that they're delivered the fact that it doesn't really support girls tends to be unequal there's a real dearth of female PE teachers and female role models even though in a primary school the majority of teachers tend to be women when it comes to PE they tend to be male there's no equality training it's very hard to engage girls and so I think right across the sporting industry everybody can agree on this being the single most fundamental issue if we don't capture girls at that early age you know we're lost forever and and campaigns like this girl can are absolutely fantastic and have made a huge difference but those start from 14 so we have to start at the beginning if we want to create a change and it's something I've been thinking about for such a long time you know I only joined the Telegraph in March and when I joined and they said this is what we want to campaign on I literally like whooped I was like thank you so much this is the perfect thing to campaign on yes 
All right, let's move on to the state of play, the business end of this, ladies. So what's the situation now with girls playing sport? The numbers tell us that just 8% of girls aged between 11 and 18 are meeting the chief medical officer's recommendation for a daily hour of activity. That's exactly half the figure for boys. So just 8% of girls are meeting the guidelines set by the medical profession on this. Anna, pick up on that for me and tell me... What else strikes you with this? Um, I just find that stat unreal and it's been around for a while, at least three years. I can't believe that that hasn't provoked a massive national inquiry at government level. You know, why aren't the alarm bells ringing? This this is appalling. 8%, 8% of for girls. goodness sake. You know, we're worried about the National Health Service. We're worried about mental health. We're constantly talking about body image issues for girls and self-harming and all these really important things. Well, hello. You know, sport and PE, that's where we form our relationship with our body at such an early age. It's the start of our mental health and our physical health. And if we're not addressing that, of course, we're going wrong. So there's tons of stats to pile on top of that. There was a recent study around periods, 40% decreased activity of British and Irish girls around puberty. That's versus only 15% in the US. So the UK is far and away the worst country in terms of physical activity drop-off for teenage girls in the global north, in the developed world. I think that's really worrying and we need to think about why that's happening. And that's despite around 80% of women saying that when they do exercise during periods or ahead of periods, it actually alleviates their, their symptoms. So if we know that it's a good remedy for periods... But at the same time, periods are causing girls to drop out. That's Mm. a really stupid disconnect. I didn't know that. I have to say, I don't know what your experiences are, but I didn't know that actually, you know, women have reported that doing sport during their periods helps. I didn't know that. So there's a there is a lack of awareness here. And there's a historical. I remember my mum saying to me, when you've got your period, I'll sign you off PE for a week. And when you're 13 or 14, it's basically an hour's DOS, isn't it? So you're basically being handed a free hour in exchange for having your period and bunking off PE. That's wrong. So there's definitely something to be said about shining a spotlight on this. And why aren't we talking about it enough? We're however many minutes we are into our podcast and we're going straight into periods, but good, you know, because let's start talking about this stuff. Let's talk about what the FA's aim is. It's to double participation, increase the number of registered teams, girls teams from 6,000 to 12,000. They want to double fan attendances. They want consistent success on the world stage as well. We'll park that world stage in terms of the higher echelons of football in terms of role models and kind of where it is within the national interest and we'll talk keep talking about girls within schools Francesca amongst us you are probably the most qualified person in terms of someone who goes into schools on the front line and gets to experience and hear what young girls are saying can you can you share some of those experiences with us I was a PE teacher as well a couple of years ago so I can kind of show it from both perspectives so basically as a, as a PE teacher, I found that the amount of excuses and notes which was coming into my desk was just absolutely ridiculous. Like From girls? From girls. Okay. Like, we were getting everything from periods to I've hurt my leg to I've not got my kit to... And it was all ranging around the issues of body image and just that, that complex of how, how do you feel as a young woman. And plus the fact that 
the sports which were getting delivered in the schools, the girls wanted to do something other than netball and something other than hockey and something other than something in the hall gym like badminton and mm. gym. They wanted to go out and really experience what the boys were doing outside when they were doing basketball or football and things like that. And it wasn't until I came in and said, these girls need to be experiencing the both side of things because otherwise we're going to have a really high drop-off rate with these girls and they're going to be really disinterested in sport in general but because of the fact I came through the youth work experience I could deal with my young people a lot different than than maybe a lot of teachers do deal with them not all of them but majority do deal with so I kind of would sit down and take that minute out and talk to the girls about what is it getting in the way of you participating Mm. why is it that you don't want to get involved do you know how many women out there who are on the period right now and still getting up and getting on with things in life and really giving them a down-to-earth conversation whereas a lot of teachers have to reach stats they have to reach certain targets within the schools which doesn't allow them to connect with the young people because they're kind of running around trying to reach these targets so doing my development program itself I'm finding now that still I'm sat in the office and kids are coming in with letters and things like that and I'm thinking wow what is going on like why are you coming in with a letter saying that I can't do PE or I can't do... And this is me on the outside now, I'm a mm. teacher. But, can't do but PE. Where's, that, where's that coming from? Where's that, where's that lack of willingness coming from? I think, for one, it is the f- enthusiasm from the school itself. Um, they don't see PE as being a subject which they, they want to... For example, a lot of PE... A lot of schools are understaffed. In, in for PE. So what's happening is you're finding that after school activities are near enough non-existent. Mm. Unless you are in a, a massive mainstream stream school which has over God knows how many kids there, you are understaffed at all times. So that means that somebody is losing out and the majority of the time it's the young girls who are losing out because it's the boys who are going to the competitions and doing what they're doing. And it's not the girls. They've not got enough staff to take Mm. girls to play football. And actually often teachers, particularly at primary level, they may have a PE teacher if they're lucky, but actually often it's the child's class teacher. Or it's a volunteer coming in and doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can Um, I just say, if you're a primary school teacher, in your entire qualification you get five hours of PE training. That is it. So this is is a year normally it takes to take your PGCE or whatever it's called. And you're telling me that five, just five hours just five of that. hours. And imagine you're a woman who had all these traumatic experiences of PE and you haven't got a good relationship and then you get five hours training and then Trying you've to got to that. enthuse the girls. That's not, that's not happening. I just wanted to briefly touch on that as well, is that before I turned pro with Chelsea, I was actually at Arsenal semi-pro, so training in the evenings and planning the weekends. But I was actually a PE teacher for a primary school. So I was lucky that the school had the funding to bring me in. I was there from doing breakfast clubs in the morning I don't know why children do breakfast clubs anyway like at half seven in the morning working parents parents. (laughs) I was up at like half six trying to get ready and that so we did breakfast club and then I would do from I've done from nursery all the way through till year six wow and I would do after school clubs afterwards but again I was someone who I wanted to create a boy they didn't have a boys football team so I wanted to create a boys football team I wanted to create a girls football team doing all these clubs but I was only played until half four, but sometimes I'd still be there till six, seven at night trying to sort things out for the school. But I was through a, a company that was obviously given the money. So I would be on a, obviously a set rate or whatever, but most of the money obviously went to the company. So it was a bit like towards the end, it was a bit like, well, I'm trying to do all this change and that, mm. but I'm not getting the support from the company that I'm with. I'm just no. more going there, deliver the session. 
but then they cut down the hours for the PPA. So the PE teacher come out, so then it was down to the class teacher. But 95% of them class teachers weren't interested in doing it. They weren't, they didn't feel like they was qualified to do it. So I'd pop in there to see, because my mum worked at the school, so I'd pop in to see her, and then you'd just see the children out in the playground, literally just, they're running around, but there's no... There was no PE lesson. It was There's no organisation No, there. there was no, today we're going to learn about football, we're going to learn yeah. about netball, basketball, etc. They were just doing activity it was rather than anything structured. getting out of the classroom yeah. for an hour, which yeah. obviously I think is great for children anyway, but if you can be teaching them something, whether it be a sport, whether it be your know, coordination and stuff, especially at nursery level, which then they lost out on because of the funding got cut. We've also seen the demise of the school sports partnership as well, which was in force, I'm trying to think when now, probably five or so years ago now, where there was a network of teachers between primaries and secondaries who would come in and teach perhaps a term of a different sport. And it was a way of kids being subjected to, you know, basketball one term, rugby the next term, all sorts of different sports. And with the demise of that, that's meant that there's no joined up thinking between secondary schools who might be able to spare a PE teacher for an hour to come in and teach some kids. a primary school who would gratefully receive that and then support between you know kids between schools moving up between schools as well and that for me is a massive bugbear because we lose so many girls from the age of 13 right between 11 and 13 we lose the drop-off rate I haven't got it in front of me but I can tell you right now it's tens of percents the drop-off is huge How do we start to address that? How on earth, we've mentioned periods already, we've mentioned body image. What are our experiences of that, Francesca, when you're working with older children? What's happening? So our cohort of girls is 11 to 16 year olds. So this is your territory? Yeah, and everyone, the question I always get asked is, how are you actually retaining over 400 girls every week? It's because we do fun. It's fun. Everything we do is fun and if you put fun at the forefront of your programs and then you work backwards and you say okay we need to drive these girls in by having fun but also we need to teach these girls as well so how are we going to make a session technical and fun at the same time and that is where we work very highly and and a lot around is making sure that our sessions are fun but they're technical and they're they're challenging so they are challenging them the other thing as well is Within, I know that not everyone's running a programme. Some people just want to do PE lessons. But within our programme, we always make sure that young women, when they get to the ages of, like, 13, they are not just turning up to a football... I keep using football, but a sports pitch and saying... I'm just going to turn up every week after school and not get anything out of this. Not even a reward, not anything. And I found that with a lot of the young women and girls is that if you give them an incentive to why they are coming every week and the outcome they will turn up every single week to drive for that outcome because i was going to butt in and say if i take myself back to some of my cohort at the age of 13 i'm not interested in having fun i'm interested in what i look like i'm interested in in the boys i'm looking out for what my hair's doing on that particular day i'm probably more interested in academics than i am in having fun on a field 13 and 14 year old girls can be really hard work right You've seen it and you see it on a daily basis. And I don't want to discredit all of them, but there are... If I was 13 and you you told me that I should play football because I was going to have a lot of fun, I might not be convinced. Mm. That's why we do the development side of things as well, the development side of the programme. So a lot of the girls within the programme, they've never even kicked football before. We have girls who don't speak English in our football development programmes. We have girls who are so... When they look in the mirror, they really, really 
do not like the person who is looking back at them. But because we deliver a whole rounded program, which allows these young women and girls to tackle all these different areas, they feel a lot more comfortable out on the football pitch. And that's where they, when they're feeling more comfortable, they are having fun. They're being their natural selves. They're being their environment. That's not me turning around saying, okay, girls, come on, mm. let's go and have fun. Woo! Let's go and kick a ball around. It's bringing them in and saying, look, if you feel comfortable within yourself and your identity and the people who are around you, then maybe you can be your best self so in this environment. So it's letting them experience the wider lesson, which is if you just forget yourself, forget what's going on on Instagram, forget what's going on with your hair, with the boys, with everything else, forget that for a minute and just indulge in this yeah, activity. In yourself. It then has ramifications and, and afterwards. Just to, just to pick up from there, we the reason why we do get the amount of girls we get is because of the fact that we do tackle things on and off the football pitch around body image, leadership skills, communication, social um, media. What kind of things media. do you tackle? Let's be completely honest about what's going on for teenage girls. So we've got so many young women on our programme who self-harming. So many self-harming at the moment. We've got girls who have got so much of a complex about whether or not when they go on their Instagram that I don't look like her. Why do I look like this? Or why is her followers more than mine? What am I doing wrong? And then it's, 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 it's leading to a lot of mental health issues and body image issues. Can you give me, if you can, a percentage or an idea of the girls that you deal with? What percentage have mental health issues? Let's be really honest about this now. We've got about 70% of our girls who have all got mental health issues. And that could range from body image all the way to confidence, all the way to self-harming. It goes all the way across the board. Mental health is not, it's a very broad topic to talk about and a lot of these girls are facing it we've got girls who are in care who are carers who who are not even living with parents and been brought over from another country and living with with grandparents and things like that and they're they're thinking they've got no sense of belonging goals for girls gives them a sense of belonging and then we can then once we've given them that sense of belonging we can then start working on them as young women and all the things which schools have not got the time to do with them, we can target that. Am I right in saying that the beauty of sport and of football is its lack of complexity? Yeah. It's, it's simple. Anyone can play football and what we do is we've got girls from all different ranges, all different abilities. As long as you have, and the other thing as well is we've got a high percentage of BME community. It's about, we've got about... It's like 75% of our girls in our programme are BME community. So what we're finding with that is the fact that we've got parents who do not want their child to be playing football. They do not believe within their community that their child should, that's not a sport for them. But because of the fact that we've broke down that barrier by saying, okay, we're going to have females on the forefront of our programmes as coaches. That way we ain't got that barrier of, well, I don't want a male coach coaching my young girl. And so we've broke down that barrier. So that's probably why a lot of the parents do allow their child to come. Anna, 70%, that's a rough estimate from mm. Francesca from Goals for Girls in terms of the cohort of girls that she's working with in East London and around that area. That's awful. Mm. It, it's it's awful. I think listening to what Francesca's telling us is so important. I've read, you know, the evidence gathering around women in sport. How can we get women and girls active? Some of the conclusions coming out of those reports are they need Zumba. They need hair dryers, right? Zumba and hair dryers. Pink footballs, that's another one I've heard. Yeah, these things are superficial things that are not going to fix children with very complex challenges in their lives. They need a safe space and that's what Francesca's doing. You know, yes, girls have huge body image pressures from social media, etc. 
do we want to prop that up by saying, oh, here's a hairdryer so that you can look great when you come out of football? Or do we want to say, do you know what? Let us give you a safe space to get away from those issues and just find yourself and be yourself and discover your own self-confidence. There are loads of engagement initiatives, too many for us to go through with football and this country. Disney have got involved. There's SSE and the SSE World Cats. There are loads of different initiatives. What's your take on a football festival, for example, that will offer football coaching for girls, but also hair braiding. Where do we stand on that? I think that's cool. Okay. Yeah, why not? I mean, my daughter, she's seven. She'd love to go and get her nails painted or have her hair braided as part of a football festival. Do I want a marketing campaign that's all about Disney princesses? No. What frustrates me is there's there's this assumption that, yeah, boys enjoy sport and girls don't enjoy sport. Girls don't enjoy sport because we don't deliver it in the right way and we don't make them feel that they can. We're not engaging them. So it's not sport's problem. It's the way that we're relating to girls. And it's not girls' problem either. It makes me so angry because it's like we've just given up on girls and we think they're just princesses that only want to do their hair. They're not. Sorry, rant. (laughs) (laughs) Jilly, let's talk about you and your experiences because you will see a different side of it perhaps but I want to know what happens at West Ham in terms of engaging with the community you've talked about your experiences as a PE teacher what's going on now in terms of how you get women and girls involved in sport so West Ham have got have launched one of the projects this year which is the players project which the men and women's team are both doing we're doing loads of different things to regards of poverty and obviously going into the community so we've done re- some recently for the homeless we had them all come to the London Stadium and they got food, they got their hair, their nails done, they got doctors, etc. there. But another one we'd done recently was after our game against Brighton, obviously we probably weren't in the best moods getting a tumped 4-0, but Kia, the official partners of the Women's World Cup, brought down 14 girls to come and watch the game. And then afterwards they done a coaching session with one of the foundation coaches and three of us, so it was me, Jane Ross and uh, Cho So Young, was walking around and giving them feedback and just encouraging them really. They was doing 1v1s and 2v2 defending, so it was sort of my area out of the other two. <laughs> so we were just encouraging them. And, but they'd been doing a programme for the past however many weeks that they then got marked on each session that they'd done. And then the winner and the runner-up going to the Women's World Cup and they're going to go and be ball carriers for the was it Norway and Korea game and Scotland mm. versus England game. So in Kia are right behind them, like they're backing it the whole way. So little things like that that we obviously are involved with. We've got sister clubs, we go out into the schools and do assemblies and stuff. But I think it's grown as the years have gone on. There is more of a, a link between the women's team and obviously grassroots teams. It's something that obviously I've always been interested in because that was my job at one point. So it's always been nice to go back into the community. And if anyone, I mean, I get requests all the time, can you come down and, and do a session or can you come and do our wall tonight and stuff like that, which is a, a privilege for me. It's, it's an honour for me to be asked because at one point that was me looking up You're to You're going to get loads now, Jilly. I know, yeah. <laughs> I might have to get an agent <laughs> now, might I? She's going to come <laughs> But even little things like the, the presentation night at Arsenal, we would have Kelly Smith, Faye White be sitting there. And at, and under 14 at the time, I was like, wow, like I'm actually getting to meet my idols. And I think that's the fantastic thing about women's football is we are so accessible by the fans. I think I spent about 45 minutes to an hour after the cup final 
taking selfies and signing autographs and that and, and meeting players like the youngsters and that and it's it's fantastic for us as women footballers mm. to be able to give back any way that we possibly can to the to the youngsters and just personally what has football done for you in terms of whether it's mental health benefits whether it's it's obviously given you a cause it's given you a career but what are the deeper benefits of football football has given me majority of my friends if anything, like I, I said this one of the other days to to my teammate, I just said, I don't have friends outside of football. Like I have my family, but I don't have friends outside of it because football, I'm there from morning till, till late in the afternoon. My weeks are based around football. So the friends that you make in football, from I'm still friends with people that I played with in under 10s and under 12s. I'm still connected with them to this day. And is that because you've worked as a team together? Because you've been through experiences together. You've been through losing, you've been through winning. And so you you kind of form this really unusual bond that you don't get by studying maths with someone or by perhaps going to another club, a craft club or something. Sport's a lot more intense emotionally, is it, in terms of the connection? Yeah, and you obviously have to work together to be successful. You can't... I mean, if I was someone who wanted to be an individual and I would do an individual sport but I think for me I, I mean I used to do uh, weightlifting when I was younger um, <laughs> Olympic weightlifting really? yeah so England obviously for the test scheme and that they provided funding so yeah. my weeks used to be when I was like 11, 12 I used to train twice a week with football and train twice a week doing weightlifting and it got to the point where I was actually alright at doing weightlifting and I said if I wanted to be an individual performer then I could have gone down that route. But for me, it was seeing my friends twice a week and playing with them on the weekend and winning and losing together was massive for me growing up. But even little things, I remember like you're talking about body image. I, I still to this day talk about it because it still haunts me. But at 15 years of age, I was told by one of my coaches that I was fat. Not even that I might need to... I don't know how you'd word it, but... But, but, but he just worded it fat. Well, she worded it saying, wow. you are... Listen, Ginny, I had a meeting. You are fat. We need to get you on what they called fat burners, where <gasps> I would sit on a bike. Me and Becky Spencer, who's obviously at West Ham, we both went through it together. So we'd sit on the bike watching the TV, literally that half hour of steady cycling that you had to do. And that was our nights, most nights. And from that day on, I've had a constant thing about how I look. Like if you, you speak to my partner... I'll get up in the morning and I'll, I've got mirrored wardrobes and I do this every single day. Nothing changes. I'll get up and I'll lift my pyjama top up. But I know nothing's changed from the night before. Check out, <laughs> check out your you abs see, or just... Well, I, I don't know where they are, their abs, but <laughs> it's just something that I've done since I was little where I'll get up wherever I go. Well, I could be in a hotel, I could be at my mum's and I'll lift my top up just to see my belly, not... But like I said, I've not done nothing. It's not like I've done an intense session or I've done abs before. And that's come from me being told that I was fat at 15. Wow. And that's, that's 13 insane. years later, it still sticks in it's my head. It's still there. Yeah. I also want to talk, Anna, about success in business and how we don't talk enough about how girls that play team sports like football, particularly like football, do better in business. And I tell my daughter this all the time. I say to her, if you want to go and lead a corporation, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you will be set up better if you play team sports. There's some research by Ernst & Young that said, of course, that women on boards, if a board has at least 30% representation of women, that business is something like 8% more likely to succeed. Well, if it's a massive company, 8% is a huge amount of money, right? And so why aren't we talking about that 
enough. If you are in a team sport, if you play team sports right from primary through to secondary and on to university too, or at some point in your life benefit from team sports, you will be more statistically successful in business. We have to get that message out to head head teachers across schools. It's really, really important all the time that we're neglecting PE, not making it a core subject, not using agency teachers like Jilly was talking about. A lot of money has been thrown at uh, primary school PE as the primary premium but the direction about how to use it is not there so we're bringing agencies uh, they come and go there's no sort of core relationship with the school that's really worrying if we got head teachers to understand that academic performance improves when you get kids more physically active we're seeing it with the daily mile stats discipline issues improve and the daily mile is a mile run before school is it it can be any time during the school day it's just 15 minutes and you don't have to run you can walk that's fine but the whole school does it 1.5 million pounds funding has gone from sport england into trying to get the daily mile across more schools but there is an issue with inner city schools if you don't have a mile circumference like my daughter's school yeah then they can't do it but we effectively walking around in circles right but or in figures of eight 15 times around the playground it does improve concentration levels it does and it improves discipline so we're spending all this money you know um pupil referral units and all this kind of thing we're wondering how do we get these kids into mainstream education they don't fit into classrooms keep them more physically active and and the evidence is that they will perform and behave better in an academic environment so that evidence needs to go in front of head teachers we also need to convince parents there's a lot of parents who think that you have to choose between sport and academia they want their girls to be successful as doctors or lawyers they don't understand that there's a really strong correlation there exactly that ey study showed that over nearly 90 percent of the women in the c-suite level so that's the executive level of their global company had a sports background wow. so we're talking about Indra Nui 90% well it's 89% but you know 90 yeah <laughs> Indra Nui who's the CEO of Pepsi Cola played cricket growing up Hillary Clinton all these big business magnates had sport in their locker room here's a question for you we are talking about how important it is to start this app at primary level and there and there are two things here there's the misconception that starts to be instilled at primary level then there's the drop-off at secondary level At primary level, what I want to know when we're introducing kids to sport at the age of four and five, they don't see race. They don't see social status. I would argue with that. Okay, all right, okay. Okay, so I would perceive that they don't see the difference with their their four-year-old classmates. But what they do see is a difference in sport in terms of they are sexist. You know, boys at the age of four are saying to girls... This isn't a girl's sport about football. They are saying girls don't play football. Girls aren't allowed to play football. And when I heard from one of my daughter's friends that she was told by a boy, girls aren't allowed to play football. When you're not that confident and you're five or six and you're authoritatively told you're not allowed to play football, well, goodbye the next year or two trying to engage that girl in football because that's your confidence gone, right? Yeah, why are we letting four-year-old girls encounter outright sexism at school in it, which is supposed to be a protected environment. And they don't even know it's sexism. They don't even know it's wrong necessarily because they're too young to understand it. Then they're knowing that they can't do something and it's because they are a girl. And that message is so dangerous because then what else are they going to feel that they can't do because they are a girl? And they pick up on all those subtle messages from TV programmes, from clothing lines, whatever it is about what girls and boys can do. I think that's why visibility is key. 
I think if from the from the ground all the way up that we need to have visibility on the forefront of everything we do, from teachers to PE teachers to ambassadors to people on television. These kids are switching on televisions and they are not seeing majority of the time women in these roles. They are not seeing in their schools people they can relate to. Maybe coaches are coming into the schools. There may be men, male coaches who are coming in. So you're finding already that from a young level, these kids are not seeing seeing these role models, seeing people actually achieving these things. And I think that's another issue. Hello, I'm Caroline Barker and you can find me on the Totally Football League show. And this week we're talking this. It's not better than someone in the bushes, though. No. It can't be. <laughs> this. Now, I would argue that Derek Adams and Kevin Bond maybe um, didn't stay cool ahead of the weekend games. And this. Love going to Sheffield United. It's one of the best noises you hear outside the Premier League. Is that generic enough for you? That's the Totally Football League show with this. Available every Tuesday. Just hit subscribe and download on your preferred podcast app to listen to more of our dulcet tones. Okay, well, let's move on to the penultimate part of this podcast. Challenge accepted. How do we do this? How can we each try and make a change? Let's start at the grassroots with you, Francesca. What's on your wish list? I'm I'm going to start with the first one, which is probably funding. And it's an issue across so many areas. And it's not just sport. It's social care. It's policing on our streets. It's knife crime. It's hospital budgets. It's everywhere. There is a lack of funding. Can anything be done? Are we missing a trick? Are there funds there that aren't being used properly? I think there is funds there not being used properly, probably not being advertised. Probably not being advertised, to be honest with you. I'm I'm very I've had to employ someone who's who's qualified and has a good knowledge of the funding sector because there's so many funds out there which I hadn't didn't have a scooby-doo about i was like what you can apply for that okay so there's there's so many like you would apply for the natural things like the big ones like the mayor's fund or sports england because they're the ones you hear a lot about but there is a lot of funds underlying which which we don't hear a lot about even just small little grants like from boots boots do grants small little grants for community and programs there's a lot of grants out there for community programs does there need to be a central database where we can access this information if we're a PE teacher if we're planning to start up a local programme on a Saturday morning with girls in the park, do we need a central resource, a database? I think that it would be great if we had a central resource for everybody to go to so people could see what is out there and what fits in. I think that Sports England did do one, didn't they? They have got one on there. But again, I think as well that it's not, like for example, I'm, I'm, I'm a CIC company, so I'm a community interest company. So what you find is, even though I'm doing the great work and I'm at the forefront and I'm, I'm, I'm making the impact, it's a lot more challenging for me to get the funding and the resources I need compared to a a charity. Okay. So there's a massive differentiation there within, and we run the, the organisations exactly the same. It's just that one's got a, a, a body, um, a, a charity body who sits around the table and the other one has volunteers who sit around the table and do, does it every now and then. You can rotate it. So I think as well, I think a lot more knowledge around a lot more fund funders being more open rather than them seeing a status of you're a CIC and you're a charity them turning around going but are you doing the work are you having the impact yeah so following it through looking at the outcomes Anna the FA and the Youth Sport Trust ran Game of Our Own in 2018 that was a programme to put football out to well over five and a half thousand secondary school girls 40% of the girls that took part in a post-programme survey said that their mental well-being had been improved 90% of the girls who helped to lead and deliver the programme said their confidence had been improved generally 90% that's a great figure 
So therefore, is the key to unlocking these participation goals that have been set by the FA is to go to schools with that ready-made audience there and deliver the message in the right way. Hell yes. And why have we only just done it in 2018? (laughs) For goodness sake. And are we still doing it now? I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, it needs to be a much, much bigger programme. That was a pilot programme to test it out. Great that they've done it, but they've only just done it. So we've got a huge amount of work to do to to catch up so that we don't lose this generation now. I'm going to chip in and say there are loads of well-meaning football initiatives out there, but I can't get my head around them all. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. For me, there's loads of great stuff going on, Okay, There's Disney's involvement with the girls football week except for it was a three-year program there was lots of press about it last year and I can't see anything of it this year so what's happened to Disney and the girls football program how are all these sponsors who are engaging going to stay engaged and how are we going to keep hearing about it and can we try and find some way to knit together all the good stuff that's going on I don't doubt it's good and it's brilliant but I can't remember half of it I think we need to work much more closely with schools. You know, the school that my daughter goes to, you can practically see Tottenham's new stadium from it. The after-school clubs went went round last year and they were all completely gender equal except for there was a boys' football club and there was no girls' football club. And that plus the Women in Football What If campaign prompted me to make a pledge, and anyone can make a pledge, to say, what if we set up a girls' football club at my daughter's school? And we did. I literally contacted Karen Hills, the Tottenham manager. Amazing woman. My God, what a season. And yeah, what a season amazing. she's had. And yet, despite all that, you wouldn't see Poch doing this. She came down to my daughter's school and delivered coaching sessions. Hello. You know, six and seven year old girls getting coached by Karen, as well as her team. They helped us to set up a girls football club. The deputy head at the school was amazing, really supported it, made sure that we had facilities to do it. Initially, they'd worried that there wouldn't be the interest, but the club was oversubscribed and there's still a waiting list to get into the, into the club. We're working really closely with Tottenham to deliver it. Why can't we do more of those partnerships Mm. and why can't they be central funding for for example Premier League clubs to deliver girls football in schools women's football clubs are starved of funds anyway so let's support them and help them again it needs to be set out it needs to be set out clearly because if you're a PE teacher who's had five hours training in your in your teaching training on PE and you're wondering how to engage more girls it shouldn't be difficult you know we shouldn't be putting those barriers out there it shouldn't be difficult for you to find out who to speak to at your local club or a list of all the local clubs a list of the initiatives that you you can get involved with. Anna, I noticed you had a great article this week in Telegraph Women's Sport about Eartha Pond and the fact that sports bras could be key to getting this right. How? Brilliant article. Um, Earth is such a great spokesperson for this issue, um, you know, has been a teacher herself as well. And uh, interestingly, around the same time, Dr. Nicola Brown wrote into the Telegraph and said one of the biggest issues that isn't recognised in the research that's coming out around, you know, the lack of girls doing physical activity is sports bras. She said that she did a survey of 11, 17 year olds and over half avoid exercise because of their breasts, because they don't have adequate support. And that's exactly the same story that I hear from a lot of teachers, PE and dance teachers telling me that girls are not active because of that. Gilly, I'm going to move on to the professional game because a big part of this is role models, is girls being able to go to Wembley and uh, sit in a crowd of 45,000 or so and watch women's football go on to be able to turn on the TV this summer and see the Women's World Cup. The finals sold out. I think that's, what, just 50-odd thousand perhaps will be turning up to watch the Women's World Cup final at the Stade de Lyon. So there's there's some good stuff going on in the in the upper echelons of the game. Can we do more? Should, should there be more done to boost the visibility of the game what are what are your frustrations yeah I think 
it obviously us being professional footballers, we have a role to play in it, a massive role in being more obviously recognisable to to the young girls from primary school all the way up to secondary school. But I think as well as I, I've been part of an era that was semi-pro, so. I've not been chucked in or been blessed at being a professional at 17, 18. Mm. So for me, it's, I'm more appreciative of what I've gone through and I'm yeah. more aware of that side yes. of things. You might say to a 17, 18 year old now, professional footballer who might not even think about primary school PE teaching. So do stuff. they need to be reminded of the heritage of their responsibility or is that too much? No, I think I think it's every right to say, listen, you go out into this school this week around base it around your your weekly schedule. I know obviously we say at West Ham, like we're blessed to do the job that we do, but the obviously the hours and the days off that we get are limited. So for us doing appearances, we try and base them on the days that we're actually in rather than maybe being in six days and on that one day off, right, you've got to go mm-hmm. and do mm-hmm. because then footballers are a bit like, Well, the men wouldn't be doing it. The men wouldn't be asked to go and do that. Are you asked to do more than the men? I'm unaware of what the men do. We okay. are, we do do a lot, but again, I'm someone you can speak to the media person. I will, I will do everything, and I'm not someone. If someone says to me, "Jill, can you go and do this? Can you go and do that?" I'm not gonna go. No, I, I don't want to do it because I've been part of an era that I did have to work mm. at one point. Mm. I did have to do four jobs and play semi-professional at Arsenal. Do you know what I mean? So for me, I'm more appreciative of that. But I do think I do think we need to go out more in schools. I do think even whether it be assemblies, whether it be going to an after school club, spending half hour just talking to the girls, family girls. Yeah. What's that, Anna? I said, can she come to us? I've got but, to say, I've got a few schools in East London to come to. I just want to say that the women's footballers are amazing. They're all so conscious of giving back of that heritage in a, in a way that men's footballers just aren't. And I, I think that's one of the real strengths of the game and, and we should be so happy. It's not It's not the play. It's, just, it's not the onus on the players to go mm. and do it. It's the structure around them. So are we getting it right on the upper level in terms of having something for young girls to aspire to in terms of women's football being in the public sphere. Are we getting it right there? But we need to make sure that with all that going on at the top, the bottom's ready to keep feeding it. Yeah, but we have to get it right at the top too, right? So it's, what's it's, going wrong at, wrong at the top? Okay, so for example, this week, it's the Women's Champions League final. It should be the highlight of the week. It's Barcelona-Leon. Massive game, loads of lionesses involved, big stars ahead of the World Cup. Is it on TV? We do a TV listing every single week for Telegraph Women's Sport newsletter. I We could not find it. It's the same kickoff as the men's it's FA Cup final. Ki- exactly. Right. And there's the scheduling problems too. And we had that at the FA Cup as well, didn't we? And um, yeah. I know a lot of West Ham fans, in fact, a few fans wrote to me and said, we really want you to talk about this. And that's mm. when I knew it really captured people, really captured West Ham fans who felt a real injustice, actually, at not being able to do both the men's game and the women's final. The Women's Champions League final, by the way, is on BT Sport Extra 3. Hold your horses. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Headlines have been created Gilly abroad um, Juve uh, played in front of a crowd of 39,000 recently in Spain Atletico Madrid played Barcelona they hosted Barca in front of an amazing 60,000 plus fans one-off gimmicks or should there be more of that? No, there 100% should be more of it but I, obviously I did see on Twitter then that um, Atletico Madrid I think it was played the week after and I think they only had like 800 fans there because their stadium is so far away from where their their men's home ground is and and you do a, a lot find a lot of the clubs that I've played for it is a family so you're talking about the FA Cup final the amount of West Ham men's fans that come down to support us because we are part of the family so for that game there would have been a lot of Atletico Madrid fans who go and watch the men's game go and watch them but then the next week when you're mm. asking them to travel 
to a stadium that's nowhere near where they're, they're used to being, then their fans, I think, drop to around 800. Yeah. So, so there's something there. Yeah, you have to stay on top of it and you have to not just promote a one-off game, but constantly keep promoting all the games yeah. that are coming up. Well, it was good to see that title decider in the WSL, the uh, top uh, flight of women's football where Arsenal lifted the title for the first time in seven years in front of a crowd of 5,265 at the Amex, the men's stadium at Brighton. Is it coming to West Ham? Are West Ham going to be hosting a women's game? Well, hopefully. I mean, the London <laughs> Stadium's fantastic. We've been down there a few times. But in regards to attendances, like you're looking at West Ham, like they've gone up, their attendances have gone up over 100% this year. Obviously, yes. we've gone from the third tier up to the, the top league. But we even our last game of the season against Brighton, it was 1,400 were there. And it was obviously a 12.30 kickoff. Um, the men's team were playing as well that day. But we had 1,400 there. And we've averaged, I think, over a 1,000 minimum for each game, which has been incredible. Absolutely brilliant. And now you've got uh, Manchester United women moving into that top flight, the WSL1. Um, and, of course, they they will bring attendances with them. There have been arguments that their attendances have propped up the WSL Championship below. Let's see how that all works out. But you're going to get hopefully more injection of attendance as well yeah I think we, we just have to get this right you know when Arsenal played at the Amex Stadium brilliant great that they got 5,000 the men were playing exactly the same time it was also on TV so again scheduling problems are huge and think how many more Arsenal fans you could have got to that so lots stadium. of great gestures we just need to think a lot more carefully think joined up through. thinking I mean you know and Arsenal winning the title at, at a stadium Borenwood that had one of their stands closed so it was sold out three or four weeks in advance couldn't that have been at the Emirates with, with good marketing Arsenal hadn't played at the Emirates since 2013 for goodness sake missed opportunities but when you've got the opportunity market it properly so you get tens of thousands Francesca, give me one aim for you and goals for girls. Where where are you heading next? What's what's a good realistic aim for us to head towards? Um, so for goals for girls, we just want to ensure that we we carry on engaging. We our outreach um, with young women and girls is there, and that we ensure that we 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 understand already that our model works and it works very well so we just want to ensure that we can engage much more young women and girls throughout the UK and hopefully across the world as well are you worried about your future because of funding issues or are you hopeful about it because we're hopefully shining a light because more people are talking about how we need to back women's football more um no i'm not i'm not i'm not um i'm not scared by any 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 form really i think that a lot of um, donors and corporates are are viewing the women's game a lot more different, and they are more up for supporting um, the 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 women's game, especially with their corporate responsibilities. So I think that we fit in very very well with the facts around mental health issues and and all the other avenues we explore within our program. We're not just going to them saying, "Look, can you just fund football for us?" We're, we we're we're funding a whole wellbeing program. We're about wellbeing. So as long as we are still hitting our targets with that, I think that we'll have a good chance with sustaining and growing and engaging a lot more young women and girls and Jilly in the professional game and for yourself as well short-term goals are there are there nods to um trying to address this problem of girls getting into football um or is the message for you guys really about setting the example yeah I think setting the example on a, on a day-to-day basis whether it be even you talking through social media the amount of obviously girls and boys that are fixated on your Instagram obviously I've got nieces as well I've got one niece who's 13 14 so she's going through that now that phase so I think if we can be positive on social media and we can be interacting with people um through that and obviously again remembering 
we're blessed to be in this job that we're in. So giving back, going out to obviously to schools, to grassroots teams, around your your schedule, but also remembering that we are role models. And I remember when I met my role models when I was younger and now we're in that privileged position where we are that person. So we have to go and and give back and, and go and interact with them. Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast for TV fans by TV fans, dedicated to everything on the box that's both on and in demand. When I first got into this, I was worried about bad reviews. And then I realised it didn't hurt. But I say thank you to the nice ones. On my Sky Planner, you will see things like wheeler dealers, the world's most luxurious airliners. <laughs> it's Mr. Saturday Night himself. It's <laughs> Sam Ready for your Tuesday morning commute. Series linked with me, Emma Bullymore and Mark Jeffries. Back to the future. A topic title which I love. Thank you, producer Abby. Women's World Cup. Let's just indulge in the Women's World Cup because, of course, it is the key marquee event coming up in women's football over the summer. 24 teams battling it out in this eighth edition of the tournament. Engagement's already breaking records, isn't it, for this one? The final sold out in around 30 minutes or so, I'm told about. What are we excited about particularly for this, Jilly? Just excited to see the development of the teams. I think in previous tournaments and, and competitions you, you're obviously looking at the likes of the Germany France, England are up there but for me it's seeing the likes of Scotland I've played with quite a few of the Scotland girls over the years and obviously managed by Shelley Kerr at Arsenal as well for a season so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them and how they do but then again I've got obviously friends who play for New Zealand Australia and people like that so I'm excited to see the the growth and the improvement of the teams and I think it's probably going to be one of the most exciting World Cups this year. Francesca for you as well because of course engagement in this World Cup could really boost a business like yours who's doing great you know worthy things to help engagement are you hoping for that uplift? I think we've already got it within our girls, like just speaking to the girls about the Women's World Cup and and doing the com- comparisons over the years with them and for them to feel that they are involved in something more and that not only are they involved, there's a whole nation and world involved within this Women's World Cup and a highlight, they're, they're really, really looking forward to it. So, And I think as well, like you just said before, is role models. Role models for them, like during this period of the advertisement and the marketing around the Women's World Cup, they are being exposed to so many female football role models that they probably would have never even known before that. So I think for me, that is just to keep that mm. that going, that buzz going amongst the and girls. And on a personal level, as a fan, what are you looking forward to doing? I'm looking forward to going out there. <laughs> but, oh, you um, lucky thing. I'm looking forward to the fact that it's actually being aired on television as well. That is what I am So every single for. game is on the BBC? Yeah, I'm really excited just to see mm. that happening. Like That is a massive, massive It's a huge step. deal, as well as what the Telegraph Sport are doing. Anna, can you divulge what your plans are? Yeah, we've got huge plans. You know, in the, in the past, there's been this kind of conversation around media outlets. Are we going to cover women's football? If so, who will we send or at what send, stage in the yeah. tournament? Should we send someone for the final? You the know, absolute all classic that is nonsense. sending out a journalist, which happened in Canada in 2015. Myself and Lindsay, for the offside rule, were out there for the whole tournament. Swathes of journalists came in for the group stage and then they went back home and they missed, they, they missed all the fun. Embarrassing. So I'm really, really proud to say at the Telegraph that we're sending out six writers. Six writers. Six writers, I think that's more than, well, it has to be more than anyone else. Put together 
possibly. possibly no, I'm joking. I, I think I can say that for you. Anna. I think other papers are going to step up their game around this. World They're going to have to because you know there's so much more attention. But yeah, six writers, including our full-time women's football correspondent Katie Wyatt, but also some of our top senior writers. You know, Paul Haywood, Jim White. So really you have award-winning Paul Haywood. Jim White, some serious football journalist heavyweights here, going out to cover a women's football tournament. Oh, yeah. We're doing live blogging. We're doing podcasts throughout the World Cup. We've got George Nobbs writing columns for us throughout. We've got a 16-page supplement coming out just for the World Cup (gasps) on the start of the tournament on 7th. We're going big and we think it's really important that we do. And there's two approaches to the whole thing. Yes, we want to do parity. We want to do exactly what we did for the Men's World Cup, do it for the Women's World Cup. Yes. But we can't just deliver traditional sports coverage replacing men with women. That alone is not good enough in my eyes. It's really important that we also engage a much wider audience. So yes, we'll be doing traditional sports coverage, but also we want to reach out to younger generations. We want to reach out to women in particular who may not ordinarily Because you don't have that ready-made audience there, do you, necessarily? But you have lots of people who are interested, who you can interest more. We need to tell those human stories. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Well, if that doesn't describe some of the commitment to women's football, particularly from someone like The Telegraph, I don't know what does, six full-time writers at the Women's World Cup... I salute you. Thank you very much. Quick straw poll. We've seen the team announcements. Obviously, 23 celebrity football fans announced the England squad. We've had DFB Frauen, so the German national team, who proclaimed on their announcement, we don't have balls, but we know how to use them. Do we like all that? Do we like all that stuff? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, the the England announcement itself, I mean... I just sat there constantly refreshing yes. my phone, and it did it did take up about about six hours of my life when that, when that was going. <laughs> Who's next? But I think what the great thing was is that they didn't just do that video on the Lionesses Twitter page. Each celebrity put it on their own page, so they had that own engagement with their own millions of fans as well on there, which can only be as well great for the exposure for the women's game and for the women's World Cup as well. All right, well, we're really excited to see it take place. Uh, We're going to round up with one takeaway from today's show. We've covered a lot of ground today, ladies, and I feel like we've we've almost created our own manifesto. We've talked a lot about how to get girls involved, what's going wrong, what's going right. What's your one takeaway from today's show? What's really struck you, Anna? That's hard, but I, I think what really moved me was listening to Francesca talk about girls and mental health. You know, there's so many people sat in offices talking about strategies and we'll have a five-year strategy or a 10-year strategy and this might happen, that might happen. We're talking about real lives. So, you know, just chuck the hairdryers out, please, and talk about something with depth and, and gravitas. We need change around this issue. Francesca? I'm just taken back by the stats, really, and the fact that I never actually knew until today, really, that the sports bra thing was an issue. So I think I'll be going back to my young women and girls and asking them whether or not that is a barrier for them and how can Goals Mm. for Girls help them. We need a link up between a sports bra company and Goals for Girls. Okay, good. We will put that one on the agenda. Jilly, your one takeaway from today's show. Yeah, I think it's just realising that there's a lot more to to women's football and, and girls' sport in general than us just playing the game. Because obviously, we we live our lives of of doing it as a job, but the the benefits and the effects of people that we're having as well below us, but also the the trials and tribulations that go on at a much lower level and a much younger level. I think it hits home there that we have a job as a role model to to help out the best that we can. 
It's been so lovely to be joined by you all, Jilly Flaherty, Anna Kessel and Francesca Brown. If you want to hear more about what The Telegraph are doing, do check out The Telegraph's Girls Inspire campaign. Francesca Brown's Goals for Girls, that's goals for the number four girls.co.uk. And Jilly Flaherty, I'm so pleased you're going to be joining the offside rule for our daily coverage of the Women's World Cup. We're going to be releasing daily podcasts for, throughout the tournament and Jill is going to be involved in a fair few of them. We really look forward to having you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it too. Well, thanks very much, ladies. There'll be more from The Offside Rule next week. The Offside Rule is a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Podcast Network.